We are the adopted children of God, amen? We're part of God's family through the mercy and grace and love of Christ. We have come to know Him in a personal way. He has saved us. He has added us to His family. And we are secure in that. We see the entire world from the point of view of being the adopted children of God. That's our perspective in the world. It's our security in the world. We settle down in that place and we have trusted Jesus as Savior. We are unshaken in our commitment unto Him, our faith in Him. This is who we are and how we see the world. So when we come to Esther chapter 3 in our journey through Esther, we're going to come upon a very strange passage, strange attitudes, strange words. And I just want to encourage you to see the world, continue to see this text in the world from the point of view of your adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God, that the love of Christ has brought you into this family. Now, verse 5 of chapter 3 of Esther is where I begin today as we see Esther seeking to do good in a hostile world. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing Mordecai only. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a month and day, and the lot fell in the twelfth month, the month of Adar. That's how the Feast of Purim began. The Feast of Purim is a feast annually celebrated among the covenant people, the Jews, and the book of Esther recounts how that feast began. And the lot was cast, and you will see later how that pertains to the saving of God's people. Verse 5, verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Haman wants everybody to think he is great. We want people to see us as the greatest. It's a natural human tendency. Haman depends on the approval and opinion of other people to feed this ego need of his. There are times when Haman will call all his family together 
and he will tell them about how he has been favored by the king and favored by the queen and all of the money that he has accumulated. He will talk about his unique position in the power structure of Persia. And when he walks through the gate, everybody bows and they pay him homage. He wants to be recognized as such. But there is a man who will not bow like all the others do. His name is Mordecai. You would think that if a man has everyone else bowing, one person who refuses to bow would not be such a problem. But it enrages Haman. He is so angry about this. Haman's problem is that he gets his self-worth and significance from his power, his position, and his money. He is insecure in himself about whether he is truly valuable and truly significant because who knows what amount of money or power is necessary to convey true significance. So for somebody to challenge the idea that he is a valuable and powerful and significant person is very disturbing to him because he himself is insecure. Now maybe you have been trying to build significance in life based on the accumulation of position and wealth. Maybe for you that's what value means. That's your bottom line. I want to correct the perception that your value is tied to your wealth or your power. I want to suggest to you that you settle into the comfortable place of peace in the family of God and that you realize and know that you are of infinite worth and great significance because God made you and he sent his son Jesus to save you. If you could shift from getting your significance and value from what you have accumulated and what promotions and position you have to being a child of God and in his presence and knowing that you are securely valued and significant before him. If you could make that switch, you would walk through the rest of your life so confident, so ready to face every day, not disturbed by the evil opinions of others. You would not be swayed by folks who disagree with your view or will not bow to you. That wouldn't be a problem for you anymore because you would know that God loves you, that Jesus died on the cross for you, that you've got a home in heaven when you die and you are of great significance and value to the Father in heaven and nothing could ever shake that. That's where you need to settle down and be. Because you're going to be seeking for significance and value all the rest of your, your life. It's just part of the human journey. And if we get it from the things we accumulate in the powerful positions that we have, then we remain insecure inside, unsettled inside. And if somebody challenges it, we get angry. Because it touching, touches something in us. We were afraid of that. We are afraid we weren't deserving of value and significance and now somebody has pointed it out. And down deep inside, oftentimes we feel worthless. We feel discarded. We feel like we haven't achieved and we're not really worth 
much. Haman is disturbed by Mordecai's refusal to bow. He is going to retaliate. But he decides not to retaliate just by killing Mordecai. He wants to kill every single Jew in the kingdom of Xerxes. When he comes to the king, he describes these people who are different. Sometimes the difference makes us afraid. Sometimes seeing people who speak a different language, dress a different way, unsettles us inside. Part of it is that we're not secure in ourself, that we always thought that t-shirts and tennis shoes were the way people ought to dress. And here comes somebody who's dressed differently than us. Why do they do that? Who do they think they are? They must not think the t-shirts and tennis shoes are right. And we become suspicious of people who have different customs. Here are these Jews. They are scattered throughout the kingdom of Xerxes. They're everywhere, all through the land. But even though they are scattered, they maintain themselves as a separate people group. They continue to propagate their culture. They dress a little differently than the rest of the Persians. They have a house of worship that's different than most of the other Persians. They have a holy book. They call it the Torah. What do you think's in there? Their family customs are different than ours. And we look at them and we wonder, why don't they become like the rest of us? What's the problem here? Why haven't they melted into the dominant culture here? And it makes us suspicious and sometimes afraid of who they are and their motives. Unfortunately, all over the world, people are afraid of the difference. They're afraid of the difference of people who don't act like them or talk like them or dress like them or fix their hair like them. And they see them on the streets or they see them in the store and they wonder, who do they think they are? What do they think they're doing? And sometimes we scoff at the different people and we make fun of them and poke fun at them, make them the object of our scorn. It wouldn't be unusual for somebody who was different in language and culture or dress to be subjected to that kind of behavior in the human family. It happens all the time. And the difference doesn't have to be just a people group. You know, here we have a people group with their language, religion, and culture, and they're different from us. And so we sort of think poorly of them. Sometimes it's just an individual, somebody in the class, somebody in the neighborhood, somebody we see now and then, somebody at work who's just different from us. They're different from the others. Why can't they be like the rest of us? And we come, become suspicious and even fearful of who they are, what they are intending, 
and what they're about. Hayden decides that killing Mordecai alone is not the answer to the problem. That this stiff-necked, stubborn fellow is a representative of a stiff-necked, stubborn people. And the only real solution is to kill them all. Just kill them all. He says to King Xerxes, it is not in your best interest to have this people group, this ethnic group in the kingdom. They have different customs. They don't follow the order that you have put forth. He accuses them of not following the laws, which I think is untrue. Jeremiah the prophet told them to follow the laws of the people where they were taken into exile and to make sure that that city prospered, Jeremiah said, because as that city prospers, you will prosper. He encouraged them to build their houses, build their gardens, and, and do their weddings, and, and go ahead and live their life in that land of exile. So I think he's gone across the line there. I don't think the Jews are breaking Xerxes' laws. They're just different. And Mordecai doesn't know what else to do except to just wipe them out. That's what he really wants to do. Well, we read this and we're startled. Haman wants to kill all the Jews, every single one of them, and we think, who in the world is he? Like the city at the end of this chapter, we are bewildered when we hear the, the decree, kill all the Jews. We think, what in the world is that? As if it were the only time in the history of man where somebody proposed ethnic cleansing. Unfortunately, throughout my life, over and over again, I have heard about and we have seen in our world people who propose, those folks over there, they are different, they are stiff-necked, they're stubborn. The only solution is the final solution. Just wipe them out, line them up, shoot them all. That's the answer to the problem. And it's called the final solution by Himmler and Hitler. How can you read the book of Esther and the attitude of Haman and not think about World War II? I mean, can you do it? Doesn't your mind go right there? We have this people group, this ethnos, this ethnic group, the Jews among us. And they are a real problem. And the final solution is to round them up like cattle, put them on trains, carry them to the concentration camps, march them into the showers, kill them all, and burn the bodies. You say, that would never happen. It did happen. Despite the fact that there are Holocaust deniers, it did happen. And seven million Jews died in the Holocaust Two-thirds of the population of Jews in Europe perished. Not only them, but there were other groups that fell in disfavor to Hitler and the Nazis, and they wiped them out too. Millions and millions of people. And the final solution is to just nuke them. Now, we are people who belong to Jesus. We have been adopted into the family of God. Every once in a while, the thought creeps into our mind too. Maybe the only thing to do is just kill them all. 
Men, women, children, just drop the bomb, and that'll be the solution. I want to point out to you today that Jesus talked about ethnic groups. Jesus lived among ethnic groups. He was from Galilee of the Gentiles. I've been in Galilee. I was there not too long ago. They took us to the mountainous region in the northern part of the country, and there I was introduced to the people group called the Druze, D-R-U-S-E. You've probably never heard of them, but they've been there for hundreds of years. And they dress all in black, and they have a religion that's sort of an amalgam of religions in the area with some of the Old Testament in it. And I remember this old Druze lady all dressed in black on the top of the mountain, working that little lever, squeezing pomegranates and selling the juice to the tourists. One of the strangest people groups I ever met. Jesus was from that region of the world, Galilee of the Gentiles. He knew when he used the term ethnos that he was talking about people groups in the world. And this is what he said about the ethnos. He said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all ethnos, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatever I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the very ends of the earth. You live in a world that is full of strife and violence and anger and hatred and suspicion because people are afraid of the difference. And some people think the difference is so striking and so great that the final solution must be implemented on planet Earth and we're just going to have to wipe them out. And I, I want to talk to you about having an attitude like Jesus presented to his disciples when you think about the people groups of the Earth and of your own community. Would you think about the command that Jesus gave us who loved us and gave himself for us to go to every single people group on the face of the earth. Make it your goal to get to every one of them, every strange language, every strange custom. All those folks who look different than you, get there as quick as you can and tell them this. Tell them God loves them. And he sent his son to rescue them. Tell every one of them. Give them the good news. Because every one of those folks in those people groups, they know about sin. They understand sin. Like all of us do. And dealing with the sin problem is part of the reason Haman is upset. He's trying to find some kind of self-righteousness where he's the best and the greatest and he does it right. And God has acted to relieve us of the illusion that we are the greatest race or the greatest family or the greatest individual that's ever breathed the air on planet Earth. And to communicate to us that our greatness is all tied up in his love for us. As quick as you can. The stranger at work that person who has been ostracized at school 
The family in the neighborhood nobody goes to see as a follower of Jesus. Get there as fast as you can. Can you do it? You may think, well, they don't want anybody talking to them. How do you know that? It could be true, but how do you know? Until you go to that person who is different and people have made fun of them and they've scoffed at them and they've avoided them and you say to them, hey, my name's David. You introduce yourself, you start at the level of friendship. You go to the stranger, to the ethnos, to that person who's different from you. You express friendship to them and very soon you will have the opportunity to tell them the good news that everybody on the planet needs to hear, that God sent his son to rescue them from sin. What I am speaking to you about now is on my heart because I look at a world full of strife and violence and I realize we just hate each other and we fight one another and we do so sometimes in our families and at work and in our schools we must live out the truth that God has taught us through Christ that in the end love wins that love is more powerful than hate that love is more powerful than anger and violence, that you can love somebody and change not only your world, but theirs. That God so loved us that he sent his son. I confess that God is love, and therefore I believe that this universe is organized around the love of God. And one day, everybody who ever breathed will understand this truth. And those who disagree and scoff, and they do, they make fun. They will know too that the anger and violence and prejudice which they taught and spread was only a poison linked to a lie. The truth is God loves us. He created us in his love. He sent his son in his love. He rescued us from our sin so that we could learn to love him and love our neighbor. We stay in these little channels as human beings, it's like we have blinders on. All the peripheral vision has been eliminated. And all we know is what we've always been, who we always are. And anything outside of that, we don't understand. We can't comprehend. We can't integrate it into our learning and who we are. And the blinders come off when you go to the stranger, the neighbor, the fellow who's different from you, and you connect in love. Loving your neighbor will result in you really living. Until you learn to love your neighbor, you're like one of those draft horses in the French Quarter dragging that little cart along with the blinders on, and all you see are the little bricks at your feet. You can't get the blinders off till you love your neighbor. But there is a liberation. There is a cataclysmic change in who you are, your mindset, and everything about you when you learn to love your neighbor then you will live. Sometimes you get hopeless and you wonder about the world, a world like Haman where he wants to kill them all. 
And you think, is this the reality? Is this the ultimate reality of the world in which I live? There was a man named Stan whose heart was moved by the love of God. He gave himself to Christ. He felt called to go to the ethnos, to the far corners of the earth, to people groups who had never heard the gospel. And so one day he and two companions ended up in Papua New Guinea. The author of Lords of the Earth, Don Richardson, pictures Stan, this brave missionary, sitting on a mountain in that very rugged place where they spoke 300 languages, all these ethnic groups separated by the arms of the mountains. And he pictures him on that peak, and he's looking past the, the peaks and the valleys in between, and he's longing to take the gospel to all those little villages in the arms of those mountains. And Don Richardson quotes the poem, St. Paul. Then with a rush, the intolerable craving shivered through me like a trumpet call. Oh, to save these, to perish in their saving, to die for their life, be offered for them all. And that poem characterized the heart and soul of the Apostle Paul who eventually gave it all for the sake of the gospel and Peter who gave it all for the sake of the gospel and the Lord Jesus who laid it all down for the sake of the good news and the love that he had for you. And so he calls you as you have seen him lay down his life, so lay down yours. And Stan did that very thing while communicating to these tribes the love of God. They killed him and ate his body. They were cannibals. 1930, Papua New Guinea, a Stone Age culture that never invented the wheel. Cannibals toward one another and toward outsiders. And Stan, the brave missionary, died. But others followed him. And the gospel took root in the people groups of Papua New Guinea. And 90 years later now, if you go to visit that island, you can go to any one of the 300 people groups who are on that island in those remote mountainous crevices, and there you will find a church and people who gather and sing about Jesus for the Papuan people have become Christian in these 90 years because somebody brought the good news of the gospel and said to that strange ethnicity, I will go. I don't understand all their culture, but I understand this. God called me to love them, not not spurn them, not deride them, not scoff at them, not kill them, but to love them. And that is the power of the gospel in the world today and in your life. And you will discover if you unleash love instead of scoffing and scorning. I wanted to tell one of these bloggers who's been making fun of me, which is okay, you know. I'm a good object for, for scorn, and it's okay. I wanted to tell him, it's so easy to sit in the seat of the scoffer. You know, just sit there. Just sit down and scoff at anybody who's trying to change the world or change a child's life or express the love of God to those in need. I hope there's nobody in this room who sits in the seat of the scoffer. But instead, that you will follow your Lord Jesus who came into this hostile environment where he loved people and healed people and taught the good news of God's love. 
And for it all, was executed, hung up on a cross to die. I hope that you will capture the essence of this one who loved us so and love your neighbor in this way. And you may change your world. Bow with me, please. God, we read about Haman and we think what a wicked man. Forgive us when our hearts are right there with him. When our minds go there and we think about violence as the final solution. God, show us again what love means, what it looks like for the stranger and the alien in our midst. For the person unlike us, the one who is different, show us what it means to love. Deploy us from this place into a world full of ethnicities and cultures and languages to be the foot soldiers of love in all the ethnos of the world, to carry the good news of the gospel and sow the seeds of change that surely will bring peace. Forgive us, God, when we've stirred up strife instead of peace, acted in anger instead of love. Teach us the lesson of the cross again. Put our feet on the solid ground of good news and help us live out what we say we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.